Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Hello, this is Father Bill Watson for Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Today we are interviewing João Villacha, a Portuguese Jesuit currently teaching philosophy at Gregorian University in Rome. João was born in Portugal. He studied in Frankfurt and Boston. He got his doctorate in philosophy from Boston College. He taught from 1998 to 2008 of history of contemporary philosophy in the Catholic Portuguese University in Braga, Portugal. He was a visiting scholar from 2007 to 2008 at Boston College and Fordham University and Santa Clara. He's also particularly interested in issues of social communication, the role of institutions for the configuration of a good society in the ontosocial implications of technologies and the rule of law. From 2009 to 2019, he was director and editor-in-chief of the Revisita Portuguese de Filosofia. He's currently on the editorial board of such journals as Concilium, Sintese, and Pensamiento. He was president of the European Association of Jesuit Professors of Philosophy from 2002 to 2008. He's proficient in English, French, German, Italian, Portuguese, and Spanish, and able to read a few other languages. In this first part of our interview, we tackled several topics. We spoke first about uh, Joao's involvement with Portuguese television in the making of a documentary called Triumph of the Spirit on the Christian Roots of Europe. We then segued into the political divisions in the United States with the Antifa movement, and the Marxism that is a part of that, and also his own experience of growing up in Portugal during a time of revolution. This is the first segment of my interview with Father João Villacha. João, first of all, thank you for coming and staying up late in Rome for our conversation. You are very welcome, Bill. It's a pleasure. Excellent. Well, the first question that I have for you is based on a documentary that was sent to me that you produced a short but very excellent documentary called Triumph of the Spirit on the Christian Roots of Europe. The film, I understand, was shown on state television of Portugal. Can you tell our listeners here what inspired you to do the film and how it intersects with some of your main intellectual interests between politics and religion? Well, first of all, thank you very much, Will, for mentioning this. This is uh, something I did not just on my own. I collaborated with the team of the State Television of Portugal, RTP, uh, as it is the acronym for, uh, for it, in 2013, on occasion okay. of the big changes that took place here in Rome. As you remember, we had one pope, Pope Benedict, and then after he announced on the 11th of February of that year that he was going to renounce his ministry uh, as Pope, as the pontiff of the Catholic Church. And then uh, by the end of the month, on the 28th, we had the official date for the termination for his abdication, and then mm -hmm. the, the process that followed until the election of the present Pope, Pope Francis. As you know, and as you are aware, that was a big uh, mediatic event, and that brought to Rome thousands of journalists 
many chains mm -hmm. of uh, television from the United States as well, many uh, CBS, CNN, all, all those big stations. Sure. And from my country, uh, my own country, Portugal, the state television and the other televisions were present here too. Well, they needed a commentator and they asked around and the main journalist chief of the team came to me asking if I could help. Yes, I said, yes, I, I can help. And so we started uh, for many days. We, uh, I collaborated with them as a commentator. I was direct uh, to facing for the first time TV camera, you know, and it went on for the four days in a row was an exciting thing, difficult at times, tiring. And mm -hmm. it was for me a work of generosity. I mean, this is, I did it for the sake of the church and, and love of the papacy. Wonderful. Then at some point there was a break and the team, the cameraman and the journalists, they were there, mainly the, particularly the one person with whom I practically was live on television when it was needed. And I said, well, what are you going to do now? Uh, trying to avoid one thing that I know that happens, that these people then they stay there and they do nothing until something mm -hmm. happens again. Correct. And I said, why, why uh, I could take you some uh, place of, of interest. And it was the thing went like this. For days, uh, we are talking about Pope Benedict, about his papacy, his ministry, his many ideas, and in particular his concern for Europe, for the future mm -hmm. of Europe and Western civilization. So I said, kind of humbly said to the team, why, I mean, would you not like to go to a place connected with St. Benedict, you know, the patron of Europe, someone that Pope Benedict mentioned so, uh, so often and other popes as well? Oh, yes. Okay, let's go. So we went. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> yes, that was how it uh, it came. So we went to Subiac, went there, uh, well, we spent around, I explained what I called. And all of a sudden, the journalist says to me, look, Father, I think we should do something serious about this. Would you help me? Would you help us preparing documentary for on the Benedictines and the role of the Benedictine order in the formation of Europe? Oh, sure, I'd be most glad to do that. Of course, this was, I was looking for that to happen. So uh -huh. at some point, uh, while well, we had the election of Pope Francis, they went back to Portugal. And I thought, well, probably they will forget this. Well, to my surprise, good surprise, a few weeks later, around May, I get again a call and said, we have the tickets, we are arriving in Rome on, I think, the 10th of June. We need you. Are you ready? Oh, well, I'm a bit surprised, but okay, yes, I'm ready. So, and we started uh, this work. I'm not going to, to uh, I mean, the details are not relevant uh, for your listeners. The thing is, once we did Subiaco, I told them, Look, we have to go Monte Cassino because this is where the thing really took uh, took shape. Okay, sure. let's go to Monte Cassino. So we did one full day uh, filming Monte Cassino, and we took uh, you know that place, uh, that cemetery, a memorial to the Polish forces that uh, fought for the liberation of that of that place in an incredible nice. uh, battle, etc. Then I said, well, look, uh, if really we needed to do put together something about Europe. We need to complement this because the Benedictine order was very important, but not, was not everything. There are many more aspects. So what do you suggest? Well, I suggest that we go to Assisi, St. Francis of Assisi. Yes. Uh, and the new pope, uh, he calls himself Francis. So there must be something. So there we went. Uh, very uh, diplomatic of you. Very <laughs> diplomatically. <laughs> so we went to Assisi. And then 
then, uh, you know, then we have to do other things. They had other plans because of political reasons and actually very, very excellent. I mean, on their own. And they said, well, look, I'm sorry, but now, I mean, you you have to have something about another very important contribution to this. And it's namely the contribution of the Jesuits. I mean, they are not the greatest guys around. But I think that without uh, making a chapter, a portion on the Jesuits and the role of St. Ignatius of Loyola, the thing is not going to be balanced. All right, so let's go there. So we came back to Rome, went Very to good. the Jesuits. And then we filmed a portion of five minutes uh, that in the end, I mean, uh, it took hours, but in the end uh, came out a portion of five minutes dedicated to the Society of Jesus and our uh, holy founder, St. Ignatius of Loyola. Then they went back. They did, uh, I mean, as you know very well, what uh, it takes, how much work it takes. I think they did a great job in putting it together. I didn't put it yes. together the edition, etc., etc., and then it was going to be broadcast around the Christmas time of that year. Interesting enough, it became a slight political problem because the chief editor of of, uh, the chief of programming of the TV made the point of watching it before and said, this is too much religion here. Well, I said, (laughs) this is the way it is and we don't change it. You either have it or you have it not. (laughs) <laughs> and finally, it was broadcast at different points with the great satisfaction of many people. So I am, I am quite proud and happy that uh, uh, through God's providence that became possible. In fact, every year I begin my political, uh, my course on political philosophy with uh, showing it to my students and discussing it with them, because I still think that uh, the idea of Europe is one of the most important uh, political ideas we have to deal with in our particular context here in Europe, where I am uh, talking to you. And besides, as you very well know, Europe and the idea of Europe in recent years, certainly since the the crisis with the constitution, the idea of having a constitution, all the polemic about the Christian, Judeo-Christian traditions and the role it plays in the formation of Europe, that was many, particularly the French, the French president then rejected that. So it, it is a topic, it is a topos that I consider of great importance. And that was sure. my maneuvering. I really had the impression, I really felt the need to clarify. I mean, there are many other things to be said. Uh, we sure, could do sure. 10, more, 10 more documentaries on the issue. But uh, the point was to put it on the table, on the public space in my country, which I love, uh, evidently something that could reinforce the importance of Europe, the challenges to Europe, and the role that the church or the churches have played in the past and are called to play in the present and in the future. So that was the idea. And so that is basically how it came about. Very good. Well, let's pivot from Europe over to my country here. My offices at Sacred Story Institute are three blocks away from the infamous Chop Chaz neighborhood that became a global media sensation with kind of the taking over Antifa and the deconstructing of the local police station. So it's all been very, very intense here in the United States. And the U.S. is in the midst of some very intense divisions about its past history linked to racial inequality. And there are people who argue that the U.S. is built on systemic racism and that the country needs to be totally deconstructed and refounded. Antifa and other aligned political groups in many cities are using violence 
and they variously subscribe to anarchism, communism, Marxism, socialism, other isms. You grew yes. up in Portugal, and that country has a Marxist-Leninist political party. Can, can you comment on your own experience of this anarchist political movement in the U.S. from your vantage point of your country's recent political history and other such movements that may be present in Europe? Yes, let me say one thing. First, I'm not following the news very closely, but I'm aware of the troubles, of the problems, of the violence, the street violence uh, in the United States. And let me add that, as you know, I lived a few years and worked a few years in the United States, and the United States is a country I love very much. Uh, so uh, what happens in your country is almost as if it were happening in my own country. Okay. Uh, so nice. you, and you excuse me if I, uh, you know, take uh, this or that position that uh, you might not share or your uh, listeners might not share. In any case, my first point is I find it extremely dangerous what is going on. And I pray and I desire, I hope very much that uh, this movement, this self movement of self-destruction, of undoing uh, what is being done, does not go too far. And yes, you are right. In Europe, we have experience with that, too much experience. Political violence has been a constant uh, in European history. Uh, my country, however, is a special case. You do well in mentioning that because, you know, I grew up with, I mean, my first big political experience was on the 25th of April of uh, 1974, when mm. we had a revolution, okay, uh, a revolution that put an end to a regime, political regime. Uh, I don't call it fascist because I don't think it is. It was technically uh, a fascist regime, but it was an authoritarian regime, that for sure. And that it was a regime that was in place for uh, 48 years, 48 mm. years. So it was a long time. It could have been, you know, a very dangerous situation. In fact, it was very dangerous. But on that day, on that night, it went very well. Basically, the change of regime, I think there was one soldier that lost his life because what? of something, but basically was a celebration, was a kind of change that was, uh, for me, and you know, I was very young, at the time appeared like a mature fruit that drops from the tree. And there okay. was a great joy, great relief also because at the time Portugal was involved in very difficult colonial war. I mean, Portugal was lost, the first and last European empire, even though I discuss, I think that Portuguese was not real any empire, but this is another issue. First to come and last to go. So our colonies, all in Africa, Angola, Mozambique, in Asia, in Timor, uh, and the other places were, got their independence in uh, as a consequence of that uh, revolution, of that change of regime from an authoritarian regime to a democratic regime, a new constitution. Okay. So, so it went very well in those first moments. But then, actually, within a week of that experience, kind of festival, almost a political festival, things were began to become very serious. Okay. And one year later, in 75, you know, when your country, the United States of America, was finishing, uh, you know, terribly, uh, I mean, suffering the consequences of a military defeat in Vietnam, 
mm. basically, I mean, it, all those things come together. We in Portugal, we are inches away of having a dictatorial Bolshevik regime imposed, mm. not by democratic uh, means, to the Portuguese population, to the Portuguese people. That was in the summer of 1975. How old were you at the time? I was 14 and I was in school. And I remember very well the trouble. I mean, the academic year in 1975 was a disaster. I mean, it was kind of revolutionary excitement. People were giving the Red Book uh, by Mao. Mao Zedong was a kind of the new Bible for many, many of our teachers in our schools. I mean, it was a chaotic situation. Violence was very limited. I mean, the Portuguese people is very, uh, very peaceful, I would say. Okay. So the, the physical violence was not actually nothing to compare to what is going on in the United States. From what okay. I saw on television, and I hope yeah. not to be mistaken in this, in this evaluation, but there was lots and lots of agitation. So much so that by October of 1975, then forces, the, the, the military men who were Bolsheviks, who were communists, who were uh, Maoists, they were getting ready uh, to take uh, power because one of them went to Cuba to ask for enlightenment, for instructions how to do the okay. revolution because the thing was not going the way they were planning the year before. What percentage of the Portuguese population was invested in this Maoist takeover? Well, very, very, very little. I mean, there was a couple of okay. guys. You know, there were. The problem was that they controlled the military forces. Okay. Okay. And then, of course, the Communist Party of Portugal is an important force even today, but never went over 10% of the vote. Okay. I, if I'm not mistaken, they never did go get more than 10% of the vote or in the elections. But then, in that year, they were getting an incredible power. They were getting ready to take over and transform the country, uh, the Portugal, in a popular republic. What they did not achieve, in my understanding, in my reading, almost by in a miraculous way, remember that Portugal is the land where Fatima is located, Sure. Uh, where our lady appeared in uh, to the children, the three children shepherds. Shepherds. I've ha I've had the benefit of visiting that shrine. So. Oh, good for you. Good for you. I'm sure you enjoyed it, didn't you? I did, and it, it was a nice convergence. We were there with a tour group from the United States, and it happened to be the 25th anniversary of the assassination attempt on Saint Pope John Paul II. The mass was being broadcast all over Italy. I concelebrated and I got asked to read the English part of the gospel. I just got kind of picked out of a crowd of hundreds of priests. So it was a very special experience Wonderful. for me. Well, you are yeah. blessed. We are blessed. Yeah. Well, as you know, I mean, I'm not going to tell the story of Fatima, but sure. Fatima plays a big role in the configuration of the Catholicity in, uh, in Portugal. So the presence of Our Lady is a constant in our history, since, uh, certainly since 1917. Nice. Now, what happened in 75 is that the Maoists, Bolsheviks, I mean, those uh, totalitarians that were about to take over, they did some fatal mistakes. One of which was they took the bishop from my diocese, the Archbishop of Braga that was coming from Brazil, and they humiliated him in an incredible way. They put him naked. They, uh, it was a tremendous humiliation. Well, the consequence was that the coming Sunday, more than a million people came to his place, to the Cathedral of Braga, and saying, to say, to demonstrate to those 
totalitarians that they are not going to, to have without the resistance of the people. Yeah. And then they blew up the radio station from the church. Mm. Another, the most important and fatal mistake. The consequence was that for a couple of weeks, in every diocese, there were at least one million people gathering. We have by then 10 million people in the country gathering and shouting, no dictatorship, no communism, uh, no, uh, no nothing of this kind. And peacefully, uh, mostly very peacefully, they, the people started demonstrating that kind of revolution would not be accepted in Portugal. Then, finally, in November, a group of military men under the leadership of uh, General Ramadianes, that then became president of the Republic, they put order to the thing. They took over in a very risky operation that went very well. No victims, no nothing, but it was very clear. So, And those fanatics, Maoists, Bolsheviks, and uh, other kinds of uh, ideologues were put in their place and anarchist communist adventure basically was terminated. I mean, okay. people continued to vote the communist party, but it was no longer, no more a menace. It could come to power in the country. Is that true to this day too? Yes, we have a socialist government. That's the political history of Portugal is very long, is very complex, whereby the integration in Europe plays a very important role. So our problem now, I'll say, is not the menace of a communist regime, but the problems associated with an ongoing and accelerating secularization. This is okay. where I see the major problem for Portugal. What lesson can be taken from this to the United States? Well, Bill, if you allow me to say uh, one thing is the good people, the silent majority, as we called it in uh, 1975, at some point must speak out. Mm. This is what yes. saved the country. It was when millions of people, millions of people came out to the streets and said to those would-be dictators and uh, assassins, I mean, they even wrote down lists of people uh, to be killed uh, in order for the revolution to move forward uh, in the way the ideologues wanted. People said, no, this is not what you want and you cannot do it. In other words, Portugal was saved from a civil war by what I believe, let me speak as a Catholic and as a Jesuit, even though it is not part of an, uh, any official doctrine, I really believe that God was on our side. And uh, the intervention of Our Lady really defended the country because nice. in normal circumstances, uh, Portugal could have, have entered into a period of civil war. But fortunately, nothing of that uh, kind happened. And for me, it's still one of the most amazing things in the recent history of my time as, uh, as a human being is that uh, very complicated situation was resolved by many factors, including the generosity and goodness and the courage of some people in a very good way. And bloodbath uh, was avoided. And so so this is the history of uh, Portugal. As I, Excellent. As I said, I mean, if you ask other Portuguese, they, they, they probably will have a totally different uh, sure, version sure. of the events. But this is how I see it. But you're the one we're interviewing, so we'll take your, we'll take your record of the history here for, uh, for our show. So thank you thank very you. much for that. Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Jesuit Podcast. We're back with the second part of our interview with Jesuit priest Joao Villachat, who's at the Gregorian University teaching philosophy. In the second part of our interview, we look at 
an ideological movement that's very popular in American universities, including Jesuit and Catholic institutions, called intersectionality. And we also discussed in Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si the concept of the technocratic paradigm, the role of technology in terms of shaping the human person, especially in light of the congressional hearings on technology and the possible breaking up of companies like Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook. So here again is the second part of my interview with Father Joao Vilisha. So let's pivot back again to the United States. Uh, you've uh, studied, uh, you got your doctorate at uh, Boston College. You've taught at Jesuit universities in the United States. You have, you said, a great appreciation for our, our culture and our traditions. Um, one of the experiences that's happening today in secular universities in the United States, but also Catholic and Jesuit institutions, uh, is a new movement uh, called intersectionality. And for our listeners who are not familiar with this, Wikipedia's description says intersectionality is a theoretical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities, their gender, their sex, their race, their class, sexuality, religion, ability, physical appearance, etc., might combine to create unique modes of discrimination and privilege. And that, that issue of privilege and white privilege has been one of the things that's been coming up in these Antifa uh, riots in terms of uh, the privilege place of white people in the United States. What's your analysis of this general, it's probably kind of a Marxist movement, your analysis of intersectionality as an intellectual movement and how you see its compatibility with Catholic philosophy, which is uh, your strong point, theology, and maybe even Catholic educational theory. Yes. Well, uh, my sense is that uh, the term is compilational, is the result of a convergence of different methodologies and uh, kinds of analysis, of social analysis, whereby Marxism certainly plays a big role. I mean, I have studied Marxism uh, for many years, and there will be much to be said about that. My problem with this kind of uh, description or term that becomes associated with a movement, and particularly with a movement that does terrible things, like mm -hmm. burning down cities, disrespect. Statues, taking down statues. Taking right. down statues. I, I'm most scandalized by you know, statues of Jesus being destroyed, of Our Lady, of saints, even, uh, uh, I think, if not the first, perhaps one of the very few canonized North American saints in the United States of America, Udi Procerra, being pushed down in that way, is, for me, is very strange and very sad. I don't think uh, it can be accepted. Uh, uh, I mean, I have a great understanding for situations where people have been discriminated, have been uh, disrespected. I mean, many of those things exist, they are real, but this is not way to solve them. This mm -hmm. is not way to push ahead in history, to move ahead and realize, fulfill an ideal of human harmony, of human sociality that goes beyond those things that push people away from one another. 
So mm -hmm. I'm against, uh, and I learned this in uh, with my own experience in my own country. This is the time when I lost uh, some of my friends that became Maoists. I said, no, my faith, uh, my being Catholic demands from me another thing. So I never, many of my uh, friends in school, they went to, to be part of those manifestations. I didn't. I was fortunate, okay. very fortunate. So in the United States, this thing means... And this is a problem probably, uh, or most likely, and as you said, it's right, as many years ago that I taught in the United States at Boston College, uh, so I don't know, the, the new generation of students have no idea. I had wonderful students in the 90s when I was there. I don't know the panorama right now, but I'm, I would be very concerned with the kind of teaching, the kind of foundational texts that are being presented to the young people at our universities, and by ours, I mean Catholic, Jesuit, and other universities, and of course, most particularly the state universities, the so-called secular sure. uh, universities, because texts and ideas matter, and they matter tremendously in situations of crisis as we are going right now. So this term might say something good, I mean, something that describes situations that need to be addressed. But okay. the problem cannot be solved transforming a description and an analysis that actually is very limited because it pays attention to certain factors only and leaves sure. out many others. So we need to complement this. And this is where I think that the Catholic identity of our schools, of our universities, the preaching in our churches, the publications in our publishing houses, our media work, etc. We need to become more and more aware of the central issue. And the central issue is the disappearance, the degradation of the force, the wasting of force of the concept of the human person. At the center of our politics, at the center of our institutions, of our social processes, must be the ideal of being a person. And the person yeah. is a being that presupposes, demands respect, in front of which not just my liberty, my freedom is asked for or is challenged, but also my own responsibility. And what yes. I'm seeing in this kind of movements uh, is, uh, well, an emphasis which is ill-placed on extreme independence, extreme freedom. However, I think it is freedom not rightly understood and forgetting the most important aspect, which is the need to venerate to respect the human dignity of others. And that implies also respecting their property, respecting yeah. uh, the results of what they have achieved with their efforts, their own efforts and uh, their own work. So politically, the issue is uh, ultimately goes back to a politics that either puts the human person and the dignity of the human person the untouchability of the human person in all its phases, from initial moment of conception until the end in death, either the person is the center or then we are going to derail and uh, develop into mechanisms that are not going to bring uh, ultimately the peace 
that some of those people want. I, I probably yeah. some of those people, militant people, they want a better society. I not discuss that. I doubt that all of them want a better society. They just want fun, or they just want to get rid or power, of or power. <laughs> whatever. But we need a politics, a political vision, where the values, I mean, the values and the Christian values, the religious values, must be pushed into the forefront. Otherwise, we are left with uh, mechanics, where the person, the human being, is being transformed into something less than human. And then all the trouble erupts from that. Exactly, exactly. You mentioned Pope Francis earlier in our conversation. His encyclical Laudato Si, he speaks about a technocratic paradigm. And in one part, it's I believe it's uh, section 107. He says, we have to accept that technological products are not neutral, for they create a framework which ends up conditioning lifestyles and shaping social possibilities along the lines dictated by the interests of certain powerful groups. He goes on, decisions which may seem purely instrumental are in reality decisions about the kind of society we want to build. I was going to mention another book. We can talk about it if there's time, but she is an emerita from Harvard Business School, Shoshana Zuboff, who's written a very, very important book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which fits in with exactly what uh, this technocratic paradigm. So this last week here in the United States, four of the richest and most powerful technological men in the world, men and companies that could be the poster children for Pope Francis's technocratic paradigm, they appeared before Congress and were billed by both parties, were grilled by both parties on whether their companies are monopolies and should be broken up. Those companies are Facebook, Amazon, based here in Seattle, Apple, Mm -hmm. and Google. And the men behind them are Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook, and Sundar Pichai. Joao, you are keenly interested in anti-humanistic and meta-humanistic approaches in science and technology. Yes. What is your briefly your analysis of the technocratic paradigm and the power of these mega corporations on human development and progress in our present age? Well, this is the topic of the seminars, uh, you know, two of the seminars that I propose here at the uh, Gregorian University. And you are right, I, it really fascinates me. And I think it is extremely needed, a serious reflection on the issues of technology, the so-called post-humanist paradigm, etc. Back to Pope Francis. I think that this Laudato Si is one of the very important documents of his papacy. I think it's a document that suffers the risk of being too easily forgotten. And I Mm -hmm. appreciate very much the quotation that you just gave, because I think it goes to the heart of the problem. Technology is a wonderful thing. Technology is a very important thing. and uh, We're using it here in our conversation. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, we are thousands of miles away. Talking here as you are in front of me or me in front of you, this is just amazing. And as we look to the crisis of our days, it's not just the violence, uh, the urban uh, violence in the United States, is uh, this pandemic situation, which unfortunately also affects very much the United States. It began here in China and then here in Italy. Technology is, is part of our hope. So I think technology ultimately is an important gift, ultimately a gift of God uh, through human intelligence, and it must be appreciated, must be understood, 
must be uh, fostered. But the paradigm, the technocratic paradigm exists for a simple reason, in my view, and that is that no technology is, as Pope Francis says, is neutral. Technology mm -hmm. goes, a new technology always goes beyond the creator of the technology. Sure. I mean, of the, of the man, of the people you mentioned, the one that is closest to my heart because I saw his movie, I am a user of Facebook, uh, is Mark Zuckerberg. And actually in 2010, I gave, uh, I offered a seminar from, uh, called From Gutenberg to Zuckerberg. <laughs> well, was a, wide, a wide range of issues that we uh, took uh, we took there. Well, the point is that a good invention, always or an invention, the technological invention, some innovation of any kind, always enters and be, uh, into a system that already exists and either transforms that system or is transformed by that system, mm -hmm. the technocratic system but doesn't get out of the system. Therefore, and I, uh, I am sorry, I didn't listen. Uh, thank you for the information. I look uh, if I can get some of those uh, debates in, in Congress, those auditions, uh, because I'm very interested to see what kind of questions those uh, CEOs were asked and what kind of answers they gave. It was uh, rivet, it, rivet, riveting television, Joao. It was just incredible. It was all day long. It was, oh, it was really? like, almost like the Watergate hearings with regards to okay. the, well, the I kinds try, of questions they were getting. So it's worth it. going back. Yeah. All right. Well, in any case, uh, my point, my vision on that is, and for us Christians, this is a very, a very demanding, uh, very serious issue. We need to pay attention. We must not be negative, ne negationists. Some people say, no, 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 we don't touch the social networks because this is the work of them. No, we cannot take that position. Technology is part of the creative process, mm -hmm. of the ongoing process of creation, recreation, and transformation of the world. On the other hand, we must not forget to always look into the depth of the issues and try, another word by Pope Francis, to discern what is going on. Where is this thing, this instrument, this invention, this new capability pushing us, or are we really in control so that that technology does what we want, or we become instruments of the instrument? Uh, this is what Marxists rightly call alienation, and I think we need to pay attention to that. So the U.S. Congress asked those people to answer questions. I think, uh, for me personally, it's good news. And I'm very curious to see what, what they said. And I hope the questions were good, because, by the way, I think sometimes politicians don't understand what is really going on. And I certainly wish that the men or women that ask the questions to those CEOs, who are obviously are intelligent people, and uh, smart people, they really ask deep questions because I think ultimately the issues are very deep and very serious and you must take them into account. Yes, and I, I will send you the link and I'll post the link for our listeners too from that hearing. It was the, the final hearing after a year-long study by Congress on the influence of these companies in all different sorts of ways. So the questions were very, very focused. Both parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, 
were incredibly strong in their questions. And the, the Democratic chair of the committee gave a very, very brief summary at the end, probably less than a minute. Yes. And his concluding comment was, our report will be out. Some of these companies need to be broken up. Others need to be severely regulated. So it was very, very direct. So I'll post that link for you. Wonderful. I would appreciate. And uh, that will be certainly for me a stimulus to continue to reflect on the, on the issue. And I hope it helps many, many of your listeners to do the same, because the issues are very, very serious and very complex. Very complex. Hello, welcome back. This is Father Bill Watson for Jesuit Podcast. We've been interviewing Jesuit priest Joao Villachat. In this segment of our interview, we look at the resignation of Pope Benedict and Joao's thoughts on why he thinks that happened and why he thinks it was a very significant move, both for Benedict and for the Catholic Church. And finally, we look at the Jesuit general, Father Pedro Arupe, who was superior general of the Jesuits, when both Father Joao and I were young Jesuits in the 1970s and 80s. Father Joao knew Father Arupe and shares a very, very moving experience of his encounter with Father Arupe, who is now a servant of God on his way to canonization. So here is the last part of my interview with Father Joao Villachat. Joao, you've been in Rome for some years. Uh, you spoke about at the very beginning. In fact, your uh, work with Portuguese television was as a commentator during the time of Benedict stepping down and the election of Pope Francis. There are many theories floating around on why Benedict stepped down, including his age and physical strength, but also issues of potential corruption in the church, financial institutions, the problem of sexual abuse worldwide. How do you view Benedict's decision to step down from the papacy, and what results do you think has had on the church locally in Rome and worldwide that you can see? Well, in the first place, I see the decision, the free decision, deliberate, discerned decision of Pope Benedict, then Pope Benedict XVI, to abdicate from his responsibility of Pope as one of the great graces of his time as Pope. Uh, I think it was an act of uh, great uh, discernment, uh, of great courage. For me, it was one of profound humility, too. And tremendous humility, absolutely. I mean, when yeah. did you see, when did we see, I mean, the papacy, of course, is uh, spiritual power. What is power? Mm-hmm. When did a man abdicate, leave power? so graciously, power and authority, so graciously, so, you know, uh, smiling, at least is the way I uh, I remember him in the night, I mean, at eight o'clock when he was shutting the, uh, the window, uh, the place where he retired first before coming back uh, to the to the Vatican. So sure. I think it was a great event in, um, that was Castel Gandolfo. That mm-hmm. was a, a great event, ecclesial event, something unique in that form never happened before. There was another pope uh, many centuries ago that uh, abdicated, Pope Celestine, uh, but this time was very different. So the reason I see this is a moment of grace for the church is that uh, Pope Benedict is one of his character- main characteristics. He's, he's a great thinker is a man of great reflection. I mean, he's a great theologian by all accounts. 
and mm-hmm. is being sensing the pulse of the spirit within the church and the people of God from a very long time. I think he is mm-hmm. one of, was an outstanding before being bishop and pope. He was an outstanding professor of theology, a real theologian, a very deep theologian. So those matters come from deep reflection and from a deep experience of the spirit and of intelligence. So he realized that with his age, with the immense and serious problems, some of whom you mentioned in your question, corruption inside the Curia, the terrible issue, extremely painful issue of sexual abuse crisis and the economic, the, the betrayals that he was uh, himself directly, I mean, the betrayal, he was betrayed by the man that was, uh, let's say, put it this way, putting him asleep every night, helping him. Sure undress uh, at night, so he was betrayed. So I can't imagine what Pope Benedict felt at the time, and he Mm -hmm. realized, I cannot do it. It's too much. And I think this is the 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 greatest thing a human being can realize. I mean, the challenge in front of me is now, from now on, beyond me. I cannot do the service that the Church and the people of God needs and deserves. Therefore, sure. I abdicate. So I think it was a great, of, as you said, of great humility, but also of great service. I think it's one, I mean, he had extraordinary moments in his pontificate. Some of his speeches will remain in history, like the, the Augsburg uh, lecture, parliament in Berlin, the speech in uh, Westminster, in Paris, etc. Some outstanding, uh, important moments, uh, discursive moments. But I think, and even though it was controversial, the speech also at Regensburg in Germany, there. Yes, it's right. Very controversial because it was misunderstood. Correct. And I think that experience probably is one of the reasons why Pope Benedict abdicated. Pope Mm -hmm. Benedict was a man, is a man, faithful to himself, faithful to his conscience. And what he did in Regensburg was nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong. I mean, some of my, uh, I don't know if you agree, some of my colleagues here, my friends, they disagree with me, say, no, we should not. I say there is nothing wrong in that speech. But the consequences were beyond any possible control. So the effects were negative, some of the effects. Correct. Some of them terribly negative. So he understood that... uh, being faithful to himself, maintaining is uh, keeping his line of thinking and of, of acting in the time in which we entered, both ecclesially and socially and politically, was demanding from him as a human being the kind of energy that he said, I don't have it anymore. So I think he did a great service to the church, to the papacy and to the, to the world, showing on the one hand uh, humility and grace. And on the other hand, letting the church uh, move ahead into a new kind of of discourse, into a new paradigm, which I think is in continuation with what he did, and yet Mm -hmm. in a different language. And I think it was important with all the difficulties uh, some people may may find there were before, but in a way it gave respite to the church. Under the leadership of uh, Pope Benedict, the church was being attacked systematically, day in and day out, night right. and day. Everything was turned against him and against the church. With Pope right. Francis, by the grace of God and by his charisma, things changed. And I think 
that is also of uh, great importance and relevance for the church because at least it lets the church be perceived in a different way even though they probably teach the same not with the same ability i think one is a great theologian and pope francis is a man of the pastoral uh, the right. pastoral touch uh, pastoral science of the needs of the people and societies you know right so they are very different and yet they are doing the same ministry which is the ministry of confirming their brothers and sisters in the faith in the uh, faith we receive wonderful baptism in jesus Thank you very much. I'd like to kind of end last uh, line of inquiry here on something Jesuit. You and I entered the Society of Jesus uh, under the generalate of Father Pedro Rupe. That's right. Uh, he is now a servant of God. The cause for his canonization is in progress. I recently published a book for young adults called True Heart that uses yes. the address that Rupe gave to the Eucharistic Youth Congress of Europe in that talk, he speaks very movingly of the Eucharist and his own vocation that was spurred by witnessing a Eucharistic miracle at Lourdes when he was a young medical student. Father Rupe is one of my heroes. You have oh. met him. Can you tell our listeners your experience of him as a man and as a Jesuit? Oh, this is a great question. You know, it pushes me out of the chair in which I'm sitting. I, <laughs> I, I know I have to be very brief at the time, but I appreciate the question because you are right. I mean, I kept it a secret for many years until this issue with uh, what I hope would be beatification and then uh, uh, canonization. God, God knows uh, when it happens. But yes, I met Father Arupe before I was a Jesuit. Oh. Actually, I met him when I was in a deep crisis, existential crisis, mm. uh, in a time where I could, let me uh, put it this way, remember, we started our conversation talking about the political process in Portugal, remember that, right? Sure. 1974. Well, I met him six years later, and you can imagine what in the hearts of a young man go when you are, uh, you know, finding out what you want to be in life. At the time so I you, was studying, you would have been about 20 years old then. I was 20, exactly 20. I okay. was four weeks away from becoming 20. Okay. And I was, as I said, in a kind of deep search, in a crisis. I was studying with Jesuits. I was not loving the place. I was thinking, I'm, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I'm getting <laughs> up. I'm going, uh, you know, because originally I wanted to, to study either economics or agronomics, uh, agriculture. And I ended up studying philosophy because I felt the need to clarify some things. So it was part of the grace, the way God worked with me. So bringing me to the school of philosophy that Jesuit said in Portugal. But I said, well, this is not exactly what I, um, I mean, I'm not finding what I, what I need. So one day I was discussing with a friend, uh, a girl uh, that uh, was by then an atheist. And she asked me the question, João, do, do you believe in God? And I said, well, look, Laura, I can't answer you that because there is an important man from Rome coming to give a lecture in a few minutes. You want to come along? No, no, I'm not interested in listening to priests anymore. <laughs> and I told her, well, sorry, but I'm going. So I entered the room, a packed room, and then a few minutes later comes this uh, man, Father Rupe, everyone stands in a big ovation. I didn't do anything. I just kept sitting there. 
And then silence, and Pedro Rupe, Don Pedro, uh, begins his speech. His speech was, I mean, the only thing I remember, I remember two things. The first one is that his speech was about the role and the mission of a Jesuit institution of higher education, a Jesuit mm -hmm. university. So I was talking. And by the second sentence he gave, I felt my heart exploding. Mm -hmm. And by the third, I was, you know, getting, getting to the air. I was ready to explode. So touching so mm. profound, so to the heart of my problem, that I said, I felt inside me, but this is what I want, but this is what I think, but this is what I desire, and so on and so forth. Holy Spirit moment. Oh, that was the most graceful moment I had in my life. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, I didn't tell anyone about that, but my heart uh, was filled with light and with joy because I found for the first time, yes, uh, there is answer to the problem. And then at the end, everyone was, and he made a point of greeting everyone, every single person that was in the room. So when my, uh, my time came, he looked me straight in the eyes, and we didn't exchange a word. He gave me his hand, I gave, me, I gave him my hand, and I still feel the feeling I had in that moment. Wow. An incredible energy, something like say, do it, be yourself, something of that kind, something I cannot verbalize, and yet I cannot forget. And it was, it was my experience with Father Rupe. So it was a, it silent, really a silent kind of spiritual communication. Yes, absolutely. So the result was that a few months later, I was doing spiritual exercises, and there I decided that the Lord was calling me to the, to the Society of Jesus. So that was <laughs> the, is the way it went. I, uh, I have a great debt to uh, Father Rupe, Don Pedro, as some used to call him, because he was the messenger, the angel of God that took me of deep distress, deep doubts, and brought me into, I mean, it took a long time, but brought sure. me really into the joy of faith and the desire to follow Jesus more closely. So that was then the grace of the spiritual exercises, but this is another story. So I appreciate very much that you asked this question because... I have a great love and uh, congratulations, by the way, that you did a book uh, based on his writings. I hope one day to uh, to be able to, to put my eyes on it, because I think um, the things he said, the things he taught are of great importance and great relevance even today, many years after he finished this ministry. And I think, I think a lot of his, his writings and his legacy is not being read accurately by people. He was a man of deep faith. He was very pious. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. He, said, he said, one of his very last addresses, he said he knew the renovation, the evolution, the rebirth of the society would happen when it publicly rededicated itself to the devotion to the heart of Christ. And that's always very, that's moved me very much. Yes, this is very true, and I think, uh, well, of course, it was the first uh, general of the Society of Jesus I, I knew, but I think he was uh, the a real providential general for the Society of Jesus. Yes. He really was put there by God on uh, the time we know and our listeners know after the, the council. He faced many challenges. He probably, you know, as administrator, I mean, some people have complaints of this or that. I didn't live through that. I, to me, it doesn't matter because what matters is the grandiosity, the monumentality of his personality and the fact that he conveyed visibly, visibly an extraordinary love for Christ and uh, 
form of being in love with Jesus and God that I think will not but be transforming. And indeed, in my experience, this is my witness, this is what I went through when I met him, it transformed me, it took me out of the pit and brought me into the light, and uh, so I have eternal gratitude to him for that. Well, wonderful. This is a very nice, high spiritual note to end on. I want to thank you, Joao, for spending time with us on our podcast, Sacred Story Institute podcast from Rome. And you spoke about the Blessed Mother in Portugal and Fatima. Maybe you could do a closing prayer for our listeners to close off this interview and kind of just extend your blessings and your prayers to all the people who are listening. Okay, well, Bill, thank you for the invitation. It's a great pleasure talking with you and communicating with your listeners. And yes, I I pray through uh, Mary, Our Lady, also in the invocation of Fatima, that you and uh, all the Society of Jesus that works and militates in the United States of America, all your listeners uh, be graced in this moment, in this day, and every day with the strength of a greater love, the love of God, as Mary taught us the same way she taught Jesus, she also teaches us to grow in that love. So may the Lord Jesus grant uh, you and all our listeners in this moment the grace of greater faith and greater love for the service of many. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.